Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, what's going on today? It's back to school days. Some schools started in August, some are starting now, depending upon where you live. But we're all in the back-to-school mode. (laughs) I can remember as a kid um, around this time or around uh, the end of August, beginning of September, going out and these were the days to buy all new school clothes and so on and get excited for the next school year. It still feels like the year begins in September, actually. Well, today we're going to be talking about a back-to-school topic with my guest, Frank Vitro. uh, He has just released a book called Standing on Principle. He was a principal at Hampton Bay High School on Long Island, New York, and um, his story <laughs> his story doesn't entail back to school clothes or a happy uh, you know happy well happy thoughts about you know the exciting new school year and so on. Although it once did involve happy thoughts about the exciting new school year to come, but uh, that was until. A devastating tragedy occurred. Frank, welcome to the show. Hi, Dr. Lieberman. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, I thought that this was a particularly uh, good topic for, for where people's heads are these days, thinking about going back to school, thinking about their principals, their teachers, and so on. Before we get to the uh, tragedy that befell you uh, on, in February 2006, uh, and that has changed your life forever. Da da da. I'm kind of <laughs> leading, <laughs> leading up to this, leading into this. Tell us about when life was. Well, tell us about how you, you know, when you were a little boy going to school. Um, what made you decide to become a principal to begin with? Yeah. Um, so when I was, I actually went to college. I, I started going to college for other things. I, I went to college to be a physical therapist. That was my goal in life and as I started taking courses I volunteered for certain things and you know I was starting to struggle in school and I kept but I kept I found I started gravitating towards science and the more science courses I took the more I figured you know what I think I might be into this teaching gig so when mm-hmm. I became a teacher something hit me about two or three years into the profession uh, that I never felt before, and that's something was that I, I learned that I actually cared. I really cared about the kids, and I wanted to do more for them outside of my classroom. So I figured the logical step would be to take, would be to go to the next level and affect, on, uh, make decisions on a grander scale besides my classroom. And I, I started on a five-year plan actually, that kind of worked out perfectly to be an administrator. So for, the, for five years, as, while I was teaching, I just did everything possible to learn as much about education, continue my education, go back to school to get as much information as possible to be a good administrator. Uh-huh. And then, fi- you know, it worked perfectly for because about five years after I literally wrote down this plan, this outline, it happened, and I became an administrator, eventually a principal in Hampton Bays. And it was absolutely... Perfect. I, I mean, you want to talk about a plan that just worked perfectly? Mm. 
I couldn't believe it because usually things in my life they don't work <laughs> out that way, and it did. And I couldn't have been happier where I was at the time. Couldn't have been how, happier. How many years had you spent as a teacher before you became principal? Uh, let's see. I started teaching, I guess, by normal standards, at least in Long Island, maybe a couple of years late. I was twenty three, almost twenty four, when I started teaching. Uh, because, again, I st- uh, my initial goal was not to be a teacher. So a couple years late, and then I believe I was teaching for about seven years. Uh-huh. And then I made the jump, which is fairly quick, to go from uh, teacher to administrator within seven years. But uh, I was pretty ambitious, and I wanted to make up some ground, and it all worked. So about seven years. Yes, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you always hear in these... Uh uh, what leadership co- courses or you know self help gurus and all that they one of the basic things that they tell you is to write down a plan like a five year plan and what you do each step and so on to and then you'll get to your goal and you actually did that and you did get to your goal yeah <laughs> I did yeah <laughs> what I did you, know, you set out you set out you know where you want to be and then kind of work backwards right you know? and it's, it 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 worked <laughs> it worked. Okay, and so then tell us a little bit about um, what it was like being a principal and how many years you did do that before it all came crashing down. I was in Hampton Bays for about three years. And I tell you, when I first got to Hampton Bays, it was quite chaotic. I couldn't believe what I got myself into, to be honest with you. I I wasn't really ready for it. Well, I walked in the door the first day, and, and I said to myself, man, I can't believe what's going on around here. Nothing really terrible was happening, you know. It was, I mean, it was, a, it was a nice campus, you know. It was out, you know, uh, in the Hamptons, Long Island. Um, but the kids, they had this false sense of entitlement. You know, mm. They never went to class. I mean, it's like that pretty much everywhere. But it was pretty rampant in Hampton Bays. Uh, there was no leadership. What I learned was the leadership in Hampton Bays. There was such turnover for the many, many years before I got there that, you know, administrator was there two years tops, one year and gone, go to uh, what they thought was bigger and better things. So no leadership. There was absolutely zero trust between administration and the teachers. So it was, it was crazy. There was no policy. There was nothing. I think, I remember having a conversation with my superintendent at the time, and I remember us discussing how the school was on the verge of a state takeover. It was just crazy. So huh. it was nonstop running around. And I was dedicated. I, I was. I loved it. I loved. It was so so high energy. I was just running everywhere, and I was disciplining kids for the first time that you know they've never been disciplined before. So I had to take on a lot of battles and set policy for the first time. And at at first, it, there was a lot of resistance. You know, every parent wants wants discipline in the school until it's their kid that gets disciplined. Uh huh. So all the battles and and it was it was just. <laughs> well, let's step but, back. And, let's step. But, wait. Let, let's. Because I want you to talk about that in more detail. First of all, um, for people who don't know about the Hamptons, what you know, it's a very um, uh, the people have a very high socioeconomic status uh, there. I presume in this high school as well. And and so what you were saying about entitlement, um, you know, these are kids who grow up without getting much discipline from their parents. That right, they're given freedom to to do whatever they want. Yeah, Ham- yeah. Hampton Bays had a unique spectrum to it because it had it had the exact population you just described. It also had a bit of a low end population too. It's just on the outs. Hampton Bays was known um, at the time as a working man's Hamptons, uh-huh. just on the outskirts of uh, 
like the celebrity Hamptons. But, you know, everything's so small hamlets, maybe about five miles away only, you know, real close. So it had, it had both. It had the, the, the population you just described, high-end, multimillionaires, kids, not much discipline, entitlement, and it had a lower end, too, of kids who didn't even speak a lick of English. Hmm. Um, so it had both, and both, and both ends of the spectrum lack discipline, no matter which way you slice uh-huh, it. Uh-huh, yes, yes, for different reasons. Yeah. And, and um, so what were some of the problems that the kids were doing besides cutting class? Um, you know, they thought they could just drive onto the campus without having a parking permit. Let's just say nothing, like I said, they weren't, you know, setting fires in the bathroom. They, would, they were students that were perhaps drinking, and they thought they could get away with it. Well, you know, my parents let me do this at home and, you know, things like that. Or I don't have to go to school. And they would drive them and their brothers and sisters come to school whenever they wanted uh, they thought rules didn't apply to them, so if, if there was no policy and they cut, they still thought they could go to the dance or go to the prom or they could show up whenever they wanted to functions. It was when they wanted to do things um, and how they wanted to do things, and it didn't matter what I said. In fact, every time I tried to do something, when I first got there, when I tried to do something, it was like, who's this young, <laughs> you know, and they'd start cursing, who is this guy trying to discipline me? And it, it, was, it was tough at first. Yeah. It was tough. But... Again, I loved it. I enjoyed it. And at the end of the day, I, I, I won the kids over because, you know, discipline is thrown around a lot as a, um, a negative word. But I always say when discipline is done right, it's, a posi- it's not a negative. It's a positive. See, I took an interest in these kids, and they learned real quick that I really did care about them. I went to every event. I, learned, I knew every student's name in the, in the building. Wow. And I ran around. I was in the community. I didn't. I never left the, the town. I was always there. And I and I went to fundraisers and I and, and I organized them and I participated in them. And whenever somebody needed me, I was there. Didn't matter plays, sporting events, you name it. I never left. Huh. And I cared about them. And I, and you know when somebody would walk in the building, I would say, Hey, how's that new job you had? They weren't used to that. They were only used to being spoken to. You know, Hey, you didn't do your homework today. I wanted them to know I cared about them as humans, not just did you do your homework, how's your grades. Of course, I cared about that, too. So at the end of the day, I wasn't the guy, I wasn't the bad guy. I was the guy that finally gave a crap about them. Uh-huh. And, it, and, it, and by the end of the year, it allowed them to accept the discipline much better. So when kids were getting kicked out of school, I'm not making this up. At, by the end of the year, when they walked in the building, they would, they would walk right up to me and shake my hand. I was the guy that kicked them out, but they appreciated it. They started to understand what I was trying to do. And they weren't, you know, at the end of the day, Dr. Lieberman, they weren't bad kids. They just never had guidance. It was great. I mean, they really were great kids. It was a great town. They just never had guidance. So what were some of the things that you would do? Give an example of, um, like, discipline that was meant to be, uh I had a feeling I was going to (laughs) get, we were going to have to save this for the next segment. But I'm going to want you to uh, give us some examples about how you constructed discipline in a way that made it a positive um, for the kids. We'll talk about that in the next segment. My guest is Frank Vitro. His book is called Standing on Principle. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick-and-mortar locations or traditional bankers' hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and, of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you happy with just accepting and passing along what the media, politicians, and government are feeding you? Or are you positively sick of it? It's time to get the real facts and form your own decisions. It's time to awaken the sleeper within you. Each week, host Dr. Nick Castellano will uncover various viewpoints and topics designed to inform and present the truth. Today's masses are manipulated by media coverage, and we will not become sheeple. Tune in to Awaken the Sleeper, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with my guest, Frank Vitro. Um, his book is called Standing on Principle. And we're talking about back-to-school thoughts, back-to-school things, what school is like. And you're, you can compare what Frank is telling you about with your memories of school or your, what your kids are going through. And uh, because, because, you know, we're, we're going to be hearing about uh, how all of this beautiful stuff kind of turned the wrong way. So give us some examples about um, how, what kind of discipline you would use to make them turn positive. Did you get them to make their five-year plans? 
Uh, it's funny because they did actually. Uh, I always and I, I reference this in the book. I, I make lists every day. I've been making a list since seventh grade, and I since you brought it up, I actually they actually some of them did start making lists to make a plan on how they can change and what they can do and where they're going to be in life and how to get there. They did actually. Not all of them, but some of them did start to, when they started to respect me more and knew that I respected them as human beings, they did try to take some of my ideas. So, yeah, some of them did actually start making lists and plans that did happen. With regard to discipline, you know, I never, ever, when I was, when I was in Hampton Bay with anything, tried to reinvent the wheel. You know, some things are just real basic. So I, I'm certain that just about every school has the same disciplinary measures that I implemented. The trick was that Hampton Bays didn't have anything. Their last policy when I got there in 2003 was from the 70s. It was just an, an abandoned school district. So, so it was like, uh, to write a hundred times, I will not come to class late? <laughs> yeah, it was silly things. I was looking at this thing and I said, I don't even know what this is. Like, we can't have this here. This, is, this has lawsuit written all over it. First of huh. all, you, you can't even do these things. So... All I did with regard to discipline is that I stayed consistent. If you cut class, you got punished. If you, you know, the the, the greater the consequence, the the, the uh, I'm sorry, the greater the infraction, the greater the consequence. And I stayed to it no matter what. And I didn't play favorites. Didn't matter if it was the val or if it was the valedictorian, if it was a board of ed member student. It didn't matter who it was. Could be the wealthiest kid, the poorest kid. They were going to get the same discipline. And that was it, and I stayed consistent. Now, the trick was to win them over. Um, I didn't fool them. I didn't pretend. I really did care. So when I disciplined them, I made sure it didn't ruin their, their quarter, their semester, their school year. I didn't hold it over the head where, well, now you did this. Some policies, you know, if, if you do a certain fraction, that's it. Now you can't go to the prom. Well, you just killed their whole year. Uh-huh. What I did was I gave, always gave them room to make up for, for their mistake so they huh. could have a second chance and they could make up for it. So you always give them leeway, and I never forgot about them. I didn't just discipline them and then say, all right, I'm done with you now. Who am I going to discipline next? Always follow up with them. Always I would be the first one to walk up to them and initiate conversation in the hallway, shake their hand, do things that they weren't used to, like a principal approaching them and mm-hmm. having casual conversation. Just I don't mean for a half hour at a time I had things to do, but, you know, between the bell Make myself present. I didn't sit behind my desk. I didn't lock myself in the office. The paperwork mm-hmm. came after the workday when the kids weren't there anymore. While they mm-hmm. were there, they were job one, and their concerns were my concerns. And simple oh. things like that, and they fell in line. They, 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 they felt respected. Yes. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, people many times will live up to or down to your expectations. Okay, well, I think we can hear how sincere you are and how this really happened and how you should have been voted principal of the year. But on, in February 2006, the opposite happened. So tell us what happened. The exact opposite happened. In fact, I was just coming out of a, uh, there was a meeting for uh, an alternative program that we just organized um, for after school for students who didn't, weren't making it in the traditional setting. And I was just called into the auditorium, and the person who was the principal of that building was just saying what you said, basically, in not so many words, how I was the greatest and how much he respected me, and he wanted everybody to do good for me. So after I got this whole thing where somebody was really patting me on the back, I leave, I leave uh, the building to go to actually take my mom to dinner on her birthday. And so this happened on my mom's birthday, February 2006. And out of nowhere, as I was stopped at a red light, um, a car puts its lights on. It was an undercover car, puts its lights on, rushes my car, 
no questions asked, never talks to me, never nothing. I just, I was totally blindsided. Just says, you're under arrest. They put uh-huh. handcuffs on me in front of throngs of people, students crying, and they kind of paraded me for a little bit in front of the, the what seemed like thousands of people. It wasn't thousands, but there was a real good-sized crowd, probably 100, 200 people in, uh, in that intersection, and it was just a nightmare from then on in. It was, uh, my life's never been the same. Handcuffed, brought to the 7th Precinct, an eight-hour, from 4.30 basically to t- midnight interrogation. It was, um, it was something else, and my life's never been the same well, since. Okay, and was your mother in the car then, or were you close to the school then, or what? No, I was on my way. Um, I, was, I just left the building. I was, the building's about a mile from uh, where, where they got me. Uh-huh. So they followed. They, 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 it turned out, after the fact, I learned that they kind of staked me out outside the building. Huh. So the car was there all day, and when I left, they followed me and arrested me right in town. I was on my way to get my mom her birthday. Wow. Yeah. So, okay, so when did you find out what they were arresting you for? I didn't find out the charges that were filed against me until I was arrested on a Wednesday. Again, they slapped the cuffs on me at 4.30. I didn't find out what I was actually charged with until Monday, I want to say that next Monday, what was that, maybe the 11th? Uh, no, it couldn't have been the 11th, but that Monday, so maybe four or five days later, after I was already in the 7th Precinct overnight, I was in Central Islip Courthouse, I was in River. They, I was in Riverhead Jail, they sent me to Riverhead Jail, green jumpsuit, you name it, the works. They got me good. And then, finally, I went to see an attorney, and he gave me the statements filed against me, and that's when I read the statements and found out what I was charged with. So how so I, long were you in jail for? I finally was released, it was the, like close to midnight that Friday, a couple of days locked, total uh, locked up, um, in custody I should say, and then finally it was almost the end of Friday, like 10.30 or something like that, I don't know, at night when I finally left Riverhead Jail. Well, you, and you hadn't gotten a lawyer to come down to the jail before? I mean, did you get out on bail, or how did you get out? Yeah, they said, but even though the bail, the bail rating sheet calls for, it's like from zero, I mean, I don't know the specifics, from zero to 11. 11 is the highest you could get. They, they want to see what the odds are of you coming back and not, you know, skipping town or something like that during the proceedings. So mm-hmm. I should have scored an 11 because it was based on education family, friends, where you live, your job. So, you know, do you have a prior criminal record? I didn't have that. I didn't have a criminal criminal record. I had a great job, owned my own home, all my family and friends in a courtroom. I was just enrolled in the doctorate program. I had the education. So I was kind of a perfect candidate not to flee the state. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but instead of giving me an 11, they gave me a 7, and they set the bell at an at a uh, very high rate. I can't believe the bail was $17,500 or $35,000 bond. So my family had to go get the money, acquire the money, and by the time they bailed me out, it was because the court system is just so slow. It was Friday, almost Saturday now. Well, now, so, but you went to an arraignment, right, in, in the, before they let you out. Was it before oh, yeah. they let you out or after? No, I went to the arraignment uh, the next morning, Thursday morning. I was at Central Islip for arraignment. Okay, so they had to tell you, maybe they didn't tell you the exact details, but they had to tell you what the charges were. 
They said that there were seven misdemeanor... I was told that there were seven misdemeanor counts of aggravated harassment. But they, I, I, I mean, I didn't even... I could tell you now what, that, what it is, but I didn't know what that meant at the time. And did you have a lawyer at your arraignment? There was a lawyer at my arraignment, yes. So... So you asked him what what it was, right? I mean, all you knew was that what a student had made charges against one student, more than one student. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know anything at the time. Okay. When I when I first got a hint of what might have happened, I was in Riverhead Jail. I remember this. I was in Riverhead Jail, and there was an uh, this was Thursday already, and there was a newspaper on the table, huh. and the correction officer came over and I said, hey, sir, can you do me a favor? Can I read that paper? And he, he starts cursing at me. He's got big attitude. And then I said, sir, but what if I was that guy? Because my <laughs> picture was in the paper. And he goes, you know, no. And he starts cursing. No, da, da, da. And then he goes, you know what? He thought about it. And then I went, my break was over and went back to my cell. And then he yelled at me. He goes, hey, this is for you. And he threw me the paper. I started reading the paper. And that's when I started to read some of the stuff, and I was like, "What's going on?" Because, yeah, you know, like what you just referred to, it did. They made false claims that, you know, they made it sound like. First of all, I didn't do any of it. Number one, number two, they made it sound like I was doing it to a student. They made it, and the actual charges were that I was making basically inappropriate phone calls to random women, and one of them was allegedly a former student, and nothing could be further from the truth for all of them. Never mind if. But what really bothered me was that they said it was a student. Mm-hmm. And you can say whatever you want about me. I'd give my life for my students. And I would never, ever, I would never do any of that, period. Never mind to another student. So wait, so they were, the charges were that you were, they were claiming some, somebody, well, by now you know who it was, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so you'll tell us about that. But the charges yeah. were that, that somehow they had found out um, that you were making random phone calls to women, and they mentioned, and, and why were you supposedly making these random phone calls? Were they, were they, um, uh, to talk sexually to them, or what? Yeah, they said there was sexual content to the phone calls. Yes. Um, well, it, well, it depends on the statement. Well, you know, one statement said I just I threatened, I threatened her over the phone, and the, and another two other statements said I hung up on them. So even what was written in the paper really is not a, well, it wasn't an accurate account at all of what happened and why I was arrested. Um, but they just wanted to, unfortunately, the media wanted the headlines. So you can't write an article saying that it was alleged that I hung up on somebody. Yeah. Um, so they had to make, you know, the headline-grabbing stories. There was sexual content. There was violence. There was a former student, and now everybody's grabbed. Oh, look at this mm-hmm. story. It has all the mm-hmm. makings of a great story now. Great. This is a Lifetime movie. What do you mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what everybody says, especially once they read the book. They can't believe it. Okay. So tell us about it. So now you do know, of course, years later. Well, um, what, did, what, what did turn out to be the truth about what happened? Well, here's what happened, and I found all of this out. After a three-year prosecution, so everything I'm about to tell you, I didn't know all the details while my case was going on because there turned out to be a lot of um, wrongdoing by police and prosecutors. But so after my case ended, okay, I was basically I lost everything. I was forced from my home. I was 
basically in my car now, okay? Lost everything. Gone. No more money. Nothing. I had an agreement to return to work to Hampton Bays once the case was done. So, turns out, I'm pushing for trial for three years. No more money. No more trial. Everybody knows I'm broke. My attorneys stopped working for me. And I wind up being forced, I do say that word, forced, into a plea. And if people don't realize that pleas can be forced, read the book. They certainly can be. The problem was, it wasn't the plea I agreed to. And I could prove that. I have the documentation. So, Hampton Bays didn't bring me back as per our agreement. Now, my life spirals out of control, and I start to discover other things. And what I discovered, one of the things, of the many, to get to your answer now, your question... One of the things I discovered was the, a girl that I was seeing from when I was a science teacher at Newfield High School, a social studies teacher I was seeing, stole my identity. She had access to my cell phone without my knowledge or authorization. She set up email accounts, set up my phone records, can be emailed to various accounts that she set up. This is all proven and documented in federal court. And then... She, so she accessed my cell phone. She communicated with women I went on, on, on dates with, email, phone. Then she, So now she acquired all my phone records, had my cell phone. And then she, the police, knowing she was doing this illegally, asked her to go get everything. Huh. Get my, get my records, get everything. Now, I noticed because there's a sworn statement that sh- this woman, who's still teaching, hmm. admits to this. And then... Gives a sworn statement admitting to this to the police two months before I was arrested. So two months before I was arrested, the police knew who the real criminal was. But they came two after me before you were arrested. Yeah. They never turned over that statement, though, Dr. Lieberman. They didn't give that to my defense. Wow. Well, the plot thickens, <laughs> or the thought thickens, as we say. Yeah. And we will hear more when we come back from break. My guest is Frank, well, Frank Vitro, as he calls it, or his father goes Frank, by Frank Vitro, so take your pick. I'll go in between the two. His book is called Standing on Principle. This is an amazing story, and uh, we will get back to it when we come back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Have you learned how to play the money game? There are all kinds of rules when it comes to money. 
Should I spend it now or save it for the ultimate rainy day? If I make a tiny mistake now, will it really affect everything in the long term? For the answers, tune in to Cultivate Your Financial Health with Wayne Firebaugh. You'll come away from each show with a better understanding of the rules of money and how it sets up your future. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time with a replay Saturdays at 7 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to this Dr. Carol's Couch. We're talking today about back-to-school thoughts with my guest, Frank Vitro. His book is called Standing on Principle. And uh, we, were, we were on a cliffhanger when, uh, when we had to take a break. Um, so there you were. Um, so you're finding out that it's a woman scorned, basically. You obviously broke up with her. You dumped her, and she was getting back at you. Pretty much. I told her I didn't want to see her anymore. And she, well, it turns out that she, this, what happened to me was about two years in the making. So as she was sleeping with me, uh, having a relationship with me, I guess she was just hedging her bet just in case because we were on and off. We, you know, we, it was more of a four-year, one-night stand than anything else, I'm sorry to say. You know, I had my faults. But um, what happened was this woman, you know, she stole my identity long before she had me arrested. She stole my identity years prior, it turned out. Hmm. And I guess she was just collecting and doing things and setting me up. And then when I finally told her, you know, what she didn't want to hear, you know, I don't want to see anymore. That was the end of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe three, four days later, three days later, I was arrested. Wow, wow. Okay, so so take continue the story. So so there you were, not quite. I mean, couldn't you have had a um, 
what do you call it, a, you know, an attorney that you get when you can't afford an yeah, attorney? Yeah, a, public defender. Public yeah. defender, there we go. Yeah. You know, you know what it is? A lot of people ask me things, and right now I can give you clear answers. Yeah, I could. I probably, I probably would have been better off, the Frank Vetro of today would be better off with a public defender and my knowledge that I have now of the criminal and civil court systems. I could do all the stuff myself now, just have a public defender put it together and present it, and, you know, I could do a lot of stuff now. But, you know, when you're going through the system and you don't know anything, yes. it's, you know, it's just not that clear, especially yes. when you're in the middle of it all. It seems clear when you're on the outside looking in. That's why it's so important if you ever go through something to have good counsel, good advice, good people around you that can give you sound, clear advice. I had none of that. I was okay. basically on my own over here doing things, you know what I mean? Yes, so, yes. So it's rough. Not to mention a public defender isn't going to do much for you. They probably have... 200 cases and again right. paid no money yes. so certainly isn't as yes they, they're overloaded with cases and it's a limit to how much they can yeah. do and some are know, better than others it's uh, justice to the highest bidder for you know yes. lack of a better that's true um, so so what happened is you know I have I have nothing and it turns out the reason they didn't want to go to trial is this the student that they were referencing in the newspaper that I was allegedly calling and bothering and I wasn't bothering, I don't even know the girl. I know she is, I didn't know the girl, though. She wasn't my student. She was the girl, the social studies teacher from Newfield that I was, you know, in bed with. It was her student. And she was the one that was inappropriate with her. Okay? So wait, so this teacher, this, this scorn, woman scorned, um, your, who had been a teacher with you in the same school at one time, yeah. Um, yeah. She would call these, like like her student, for example, and what pretend to be you, or how did that? How did she disguise her voice? What did she do? I don't know. She did reference one time when she was deposed. She did reference a calling card. I don't know if that would have any effect on anything. Um, I don't know exactly what happened, or if. To be honest with you, I don't know if it happened. To be honest with you, I don't know. Because nobody actually accused me. Nobody in, in the seven statements against me, Dr. Lieberman, except for Michelle and her student, not one of these people actually said Frank Vetro did it. Okay. They didn't say I did it. Some, some of them said they couldn't even recognize me. Like, they, they couldn't, they, they didn't recognize, uh, there was other people that complained against me who I also had... Um, relationships with. Uh-oh. So there we they get to the bottom of the story. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. These are a bunch of... Listen, when there I was were many a, women scorned. That's the problem. They all kind of got together and said, wait a second here, you know? This guy, you, you, and so let's get him this way, I guess. But but I have to tell you, I believe it. They were... I don't... They never said I did it. Uh-huh. They, they said that... They all said Michelle said I did it. Michelle's the teacher from Newfield. And so they, she got them to all to all testify against you. Somehow what she did was she got her student. She got her student to go around. They're mentioned in every complaint to go around and tell everybody, hey, listen, is this guy harassing you because he also did it to me? Mm. And then when they heard, oh, a student, and it's now, oh, you know what, if it's a student, then something has to be done. And, uh-huh. and so she just got the conspiracy going. She used, she, she manipulated her student. That It's a fact, I'm 100% absolute fact, she manipulated and used her student to forge this conspiracy against me. So has the student, so then what happened during these three years? You said there was no trial? Well, after they found out that this teacher had, you know, was in the wrong, and after they already threw me in jail, I got fired from my job, uh, you know, they called me a terrorist on TV, you know, they, they, they backed themselves into a corner, so they wanted to, like, really, you know, beat me to the ground so that, to avoid lawsuits. 
And then what happened also, this was a kicker, is that somebody came forward. I got a phone call, and it turns out she did this before to another guy. Hmm. And he came forward, and he was arrested also. So when he came forward, she also, how do I say, mistreated, misused uh, a student. Uh, another student back then. This is around 2001. That student came forward. Okay. I said, wait a second, this is wrong. I thought it was cool to be her friend at the time, but she was very inappropriate with me, and it's wrong what she does to kids. You know, I'm not 16 anymore. You know, she's about 30 years old right now, whatever she is. Uh-huh. And it's wrong, and she shouldn't be doing this. You know, so now all this stuff is now going to get, like, this teacher who's doing a lot of misconduct, there's no way they could go to trial now. She stole my identity. She did this. She set me up. There's two students. Everybody's coming forward. She did it before. She has a history. Yes. Well, Best way to get around that is to bury this guy. So what they did was they buried me, and they've been burying me ever since. Well, what do you mean, buried you? Buried me means just, like, ignore him, beat him to the ground, make him lose everything, take away his will to fight, give him no, don't give him an avenue to fight the charges. Let's just avoid trial at all costs. So I got pounded into the ground, and that's how I lost everything. They refused to go to trial. And this whole thing about speedy trial, Dr. Lieben, let me tell you, you go to trial when they say you go to trial. And again, unless you have so much money to force the issue which most people mm-hmm. do not. Mm-hmm. So, okay, and you, were, and you were forced to agree to a plea. What was the, how, well, how did that happen? Well, when they, whenever we realized I'm broke and my attorney, you know, gets something in the mail saying, well, now you don't have, basically the paper says, now you don't have any more money, I'm not, I can't represent you anymore, things like that. And so after everybody knew I had nothing left and they had all this evidence saying I'm basically innocent and, you know, the woman who did all this is the guilty one. Um, they said, listen, no criminal record. You pleaded violations, okay, out of the seven you know, charges you could plead to violations. We'll seal the case so that it never happened, okay? And I have this in writing from my attorney saying this is going to happen. He sent this to the State Ed Department, you know, his official letterhead. And it will be sealed. And, you know, it's going to be sealed, so I'm going to go automatic, I'm going to go back to work in Hampton Bays, and I figured at the time, since I had nothing left, nothing, Dr. Lehman, not one penny, because I couldn't find employment for three years because, uh-huh. of the stigma, because of the stigma, I said, you know what, I guess I have to, and that's before I figured it, this is before I, I learned everything I just told you. Uh-huh. Um, so I said, you know what, let me just get back to work and cut my losses. I don't know. I, I don't know what else to do. I, I can't, I don't have anything. I don't know how I'm going to make it to tomorrow. So I'll just get back to work, cut my losses. It never happened. It's going to be sealed. So that, the day I pled to that was even worse than the day I was arrested because I knew I was innocent. So you pled to what in the end? What I pled to were two violations of no criminal record, clean, uh, clean fingerprint. It was supposed to be, the, the trick was, though, that it was supposed to be sealed, and it turned out I found out sometime after after my case ended, that it was never sealed, and the, the plea deal that I thought I was agreeing to wasn't the plea deal at all, and that I have in writing. So I kind of uh, was coerced into the wrong plea. And even though I didn't want to plea to that, even, um, I totally got screwed on the plea deal also. And that's when I started to fight back while living in my car, and I just stayed strong, stayed positive, and I started fighting back. And so then you wound up um, being terminated by the school, even though they had said that they were going to hire you back. 
Yeah, they said they were going to bring me back, and they didn't. And that's when I started to dig and dig and, and find out why this was all happening to me, why I was sinking further and further and losing more and more. And I, that's when I started to discover a lot of the stuff that the prosecution withheld from my defense. They withheld evidence that would have helped show that I was innocent and show that the real criminal, uh, Michelle, the social studies teacher, was the one that should have been dealt with, not me. Well, so, you know, I, I wish that you would have, well, I guess I wish it would have been around then, but you, you should have and you should, to prevent this from happening again, read a, one of the books that I wrote called Bad Girls, Why Men Love Them and How Good Girls Can Learn Their Secrets. Uh-huh. And Michelle seems to fit into the bad girl scorned category, <laughs> which uh-huh. is the worst category of bad girls, women who then um, uh, get angry at being dumped, essentially, and um, stalk and or um, get revenge. And so this was what she was doing to you. Uh, so tell us about um, the how you've turned this around. I mean, you're still fighting. We were talking off the air about how you're um, looking into this, getting the criminal charges reversed, looking into the all the malfeasance that was done in the criminal case, and also considering a lawsuit against the school for wrongful termination. But tell us about how you've turned this around, at least while you're engaging in, in trying to get legal retribution, at least what are you doing in the meantime? Well, what I did, uh, the, the trick to the whole thing about the whole saga was, I like to think it was my attitude. I always said, and people around me can confirm, they didn't even know how bad I was doing. If you didn't know how bad I was doing or what I was going through, you never were going to know about it. I, I, I never let anybody in on it. I stayed positive, and I think my attitude, I think attitude plays a key role in anybody's life. You can't really help what happens to you a lot of times, but you can help how you respond to it. And I think I, didn't, I refused to be defined by what happened to me. I, I, want to be, I wanted to be defined by what I made out of it, any, anything positive that could come of it. So, so what when? I did was I stayed, stayed strong, stayed tough, clawed and scratched, and ultimately right now what I do is I'm back in education at, at the private level, and what I do, ironically, is I work with the court systems, family court, criminal court, and all the public schools in Suffolk County, Long Island, and I educate students who have been kicked out of school, uh, arrested, in and out of various detention facilities, and the court system sends them to us. We kind of rehab them, educate them, and slowly acclimate them back into their community as responsible citizens. So ironically, I work with the two entities, the court system and the education system, who took my life away from me. So it's kind of like a full circle thing. So I'm helping the kids that are kind of underprivileged. They need a break in life. Everybody needs a break in life. So I'm kind of giving them that second chance that they, I think, deserve. And ironically, of course, it's your second chance as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a second chance. It's a, it's a, it's a break I need. I needed a break. And what happened was a priest actually hired me, um, who I knew from my time in Hampton Bays. He kind of reached out to me and said, uh, who better than you, Frank? You were a terrific administrator. You're, you're a great person. Who better than you coming from where you came from to educate these kids? And do you use your example of, do you tell the kids uh, how you were living out of your car and all that, how you were homeless? I have to be honest with you, I haven't even, I've been working there for a few years now, and I haven't told them yet. I do think some of them are on to me. It's hard to keep a secret in life, but I haven't told them yet, and I don't think, at least publicly, anybody has said anything. Of course, the people at my employment know, my, my colleagues, but I don't know. 
it's nothing has ever been said. <laughs> so I haven't. I wouldn't. Of course, I wouldn't mind. I mean, I wrote a book about it. I have no problem. I stand tall for everything that happened to me and how I came out of it. I'm very proud of what that I've been able to come out of it and start to move forward again. So one day I would like, maybe very shortly, share that with them. Yes, it's, uh, you know, to show them how far down in life you went from where you were, um, a principal of the year, essentially, and to, to living, being homeless and living out of your car, to what you're doing now. But do you ever think, it almost seems like the universe... I mean, it's, you don't want to think that the universe is doing bad things to you, or any, no one wants to think that. But it almost seems as though the universe um, has done this so that put you, to put you in a place where you can do the most good, in a sense. Not that you weren't doing good as the principal, doing well as the principal, but that these are kids who need you even more. Yeah, that's been said to me so many times. People that knew me professionally, people that know me personally, know my, my, my personality and how I like to help people. They've all said the same thing. Uh, just before this interview, actually, I received an email from somebody who heard me interview in Arizona, and she, I don't know her, obviously, and she said the same thing you just said, you know. <laughs> Tremendous story, and it seems like, you know, God put you there for a reason. Uh-huh. It's been uh-huh. said to me qu- quite often, yeah, and uh, maybe that's true, you know. Uh, all I know is... Uh, I just want to make something positive come out of it. If that means saving somebody else or preventing future injustice, then um, I'm fine with that. Then, then so be it. Yeah. Well, let me, I want to make sure that uh, I repeat uh, the name of your book, which is Standing on Principle. Um, I'd like to thank my guest, uh, Frank Vitro, um, slash Vetro. <laughs> they spelled V-E-T-R-O if, if you're looking it up. And how do you want people to get your book? What's the best okay. way? For any all any and all information, contacting me on my social sites or how to buy the book, if you just go to frankvetro.com, frankvetro.com, it gives you everything you need to know about the book, everything. Okay. And how, and, yeah, go ahead. And how to contact me, that's all. Okay, well, yeah, there might well be some people who... Uh, would would like some of your positive um, outlook on life. So again, that website is Frank F R A N K Vetro V E T R O dot com. Well, Frank, thank you so much for being a guest on Dr. Carol's Couch. Um, I, I, you know, it really. I mean, you you did hit bottom from from hitting the top. Following your five-year plan, reaching, making it succeed, which is a feat in itself, becoming principal, winning the kids over, uh, doing so much for them, and then being landing on your butt <laughs> in your car um, to being up again and trying to make something positive out of what happened. And I'm sure, I'm sure this story it will encourage a lot of people, as well as what you're doing right now in the classrooms of the kids who need the second chance, just like you needed. So thank you very much for being a guest on Dr. Carol's Couch. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.